Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Hey y'all, welcome back to Social Distancing Radio, aka Political Screed Radio. Uh, I actually know for a fact that at least one person listening to this has already voted because we're friends and uh, they took care of getting their absentee ballot and getting it turned in and everything is good and they've checked and good on you. I really, really, really am happy to hear stories like that. If you have not yet voted and you have any questions, please email me, michaelgwilliams at gmail.com. I'm actually an election judge in my county. If I don't know the answer, I will tell you who does and I will help you get in touch with them. So that said, let's get a sip of reading wine and see if I can calm down a little. Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, that was the right call. Definitely. Let's make this happen. <clears throat> 24 June before morning. Last night, the Count left me early and locked himself into his own room. As soon as I dared, I ran up the winding stair and looked out of the window, which opened south. I thought I would watch for the Count, for there is something going on. The Zgani are quartered somewhere in the castle and are doing work of some kind. I know it, for now and then I heard a faraway muffled sound, as of mattock and spade, and whatever it is, it must be the end of some ruthless villainy. I had been at the window somewhat less than half an hour, when I saw something coming out of the Count's window. I drew back and watched carefully, and saw the whole man emerge. It was a new shock to me to find that he had on the suit of clothes which I had worn whilst traveling here and slung over his shoulder the terrible bag which I had seen the women take away. There could be no doubt as to his quest, and in my garb, too. This, then, is his new scheme of evil, that he will allow others to see me, as they think, so that he may both leave evidence that I have been in the towns or villages posting my own letters, and that any wickedness which he may do shall by the local people be attributed to me. It makes me rage to think that this can go on, and whilst I am shut up here, a veritable prisoner, but without that protection of the law which is even a criminal's right and consolation. I thought I would watch for the Count's return, and for a long time sat doggedly at the window. Then I began to notice that there were some quaint little specks floating in the rays of the moonlight. They were like the tiniest grains of dust, and they whirled round and gathered in clusters in a nebulous sort of way. I watched them with a sense of soothing, and a sort of calm stole over me. I leaned back in the embrasure, in a more comfortable position, 
so that I could enjoy more fully the aerial gambling. Something made me start up, a low, piteous howling of dogs somewhere far below in the valley, which was hidden from my sight. Louder it seemed to ring in my ears and the floating motes of dust to take new shapes to the sound as they danced in the moonlight. I felt myself struggling to awake to some call of my instincts, nay, my very soul was struggling, and my half-remembered sensibilities were striving to answer the call. I was becoming hypnotized. Quicker and quicker danced the dust. The moonbeams seemed to quiver as they went by me into the mass of gloom beyond. More and more they gathered till they seemed to take dim phantom shapes. And then I started, broad awake and in full possession of my senses, and ran screaming from the place. The phantom shapes, which were becoming gradually materialized from the moonbeams, were those of the three ghostly women to whom I was doomed. I fled and felt somewhat safer in my own room, where there is no moonlight, and where the lamp was burning brightly. When a couple of hours had passed, I heard something stirring in the Count's room, something like a sharp wail quickly suppressed. And then there was silence, deep, awful silence which chilled me. With a beating heart, I tried the door. But I was locked in my prison and could do nothing. I sat down and simply cried. As I sat, I heard a sound in the courtyard without, the agonized cry of a woman. I rushed to the window and, throwing it up, peered out between the bars. There, indeed, was a woman with disheveled hair, holding her hands over her heart as one distressed with running. She was leaning against a corner of the gateway. When she saw my face at the window, she threw herself forward and shouted in a voice laden with menace. Laden with menace. Monster, give me my child! She threw herself on her knees and, raising up her hands, cried the same words in tones which wrung my heart. Then she tore her hair and beat her breast and abandoned herself to all the violences of extravagant emotion. Finally, she threw herself forward, and though I could not see her, I could hear the beating of her naked hands against the door. Somewhere high overhead, probably on the tower, I heard the voice of the Count calling in his harsh, metallic whisper. His call seemed to be answered from far and wide by the howling of wolves. Before many minutes had passed, a pack of them poured, like a pent-up dam when liberated, through the wide entrance into the courtyard. There was no cry from the woman, and the howling of the wolves was but short. Before long, they streamed away singly, licking their lips. I could not pity her, for I knew now what had become of her child, and she was better dead. What shall I do? What can I do? How can I escape from this dreadful thing of night and gloom and fear? 25 June, Morning No man knows till he has suffered from the night how sweet and how dear to his heart and eye the morning can be. When the sun grew so high this morning that it struck the top of the great gateway opposite my window, the high spot which had touched seemed to me as if it dove from the ark had lighted there. Oh, as if the dove from the ark had lighted there. My fear fell from me as if it had been a vaporous garment which dissolved in the warmth. I must take action of some sort whilst the courage of the day is upon me. Last night one of my post-dated letters went to post. 
the first of that fatal series which is to blot out the very traces of my existence from the earth. Let me not think of it. Action. It has always been at night time that I have been molested or threatened, or in some way in danger or in fear. I have not yet seen the Count in the daylight. Can it be that he sleeps when others wake? That he may be awake whilst they sleep? If we could only get into his room. But there is no possible way. The door is always locked. No way for me. Yes, there is a way. If one dares to take it. Where his body has gone, why may not another body go? I have seen him myself crawl from his window. Why should I not imitate him and go in by his window? The chances are desperate, but my need is more desperate still. I shall risk it. At the worst, it can only be death. And a man's death is not a calf's. And the dreaded hereafter may still be open to me. God, help me in my task. Goodbye, Mina, if I fail. Goodbye, my faithful friend and second father. Goodbye, all. And last of all, Mina. Same day, later. I have made the effort, and God helping me have come safely back to this room. I must put down every detail in order. I went whilst my courage was fresh, straight to the window on the south side, and at once got outside on the narrow ledge of stone which runs around the building on this side. The stones are big and roughly cut, and the mortar has by process of time been washed away between them. I took off my boots and ventured out on the desperate way. I looked down once so as to make sure that a sudden glimpse of the awful depth would not overcome me. But after that, kept my eyes away from it. I knew pretty well the direction and distance of the Count's window and made for it as well as I could, having regard to the opportunities available. I did not feel dizzy. I suppose I was too excited. And the time seemed ridiculously short till I found myself standing on the windowsill and trying to raise up the sash. I was filled with agitation, however, when I bent down and slid feet foremost in through the window. Then I looked around for the Count, but with surprise and gladness made a discovery. The room was empty. It was barely furnished with odd things, which seemed to have never been used. The furniture was something the same style as that in the south rooms, and was covered with dust. I looked for the key, but it was not in the lock, and I could not find it anywhere. The only thing I found was a great heap of gold in one corner. Gold of all kinds. Roman, and British, and Austrian, and Hungarian, and Greek, and Turkish money, covered with a film of dust, as though it had lain long in the ground. None of it that I noticed was less than three hundred years old. There were also chains and ornaments, some jeweled, but all of them old and stained. At one corner of the room was a heavy door. I tried it, for since I could not find the key of the room or the key of the outer door, which was the main object of my search, I must make further examination or all my efforts would be in vain. It was open, and led through a stone passage to a circular stairway, which went steeply down. I descended, minding carefully where I went, for the stairs were dark, being only lit by loopholes in the heavy masonry. At the bottom there was a dark tunnel-like passage through which came a deathly, sickly odor, the odor of old earth newly turned. As I went through the passage, the smell grew closer and heavier. At last I pulled open a heavy door which stood ajar and found myself in an old, ruined chapel, which had evidently been used as a graveyard. The roof was broken, and in two places were steps leading to vaults but the ground had recently been dug over, 
and the earth placed in great wooden boxes, manifestly those which had been brought by the Slovaks. There was nobody about, and I made search for any further outlet, but there was none. Then I went over every inch of the ground, so as not to lose a chance. I went down even into the vaults, where the dim light struggled, although to do so was a dread to my very soul. Into two of these I went, but saw nothing except fragments of old coffins and piles of dust. In the third, however, I made a discovery. There, in one of the great boxes, of which there were fifty in all, on a pile of newly dug earth, lay the Count. He was either dead or asleep, I could not say which, for the eyes were open and stony, but without the glassiness of death, and the cheeks had the warmth of life through all their pallor. The lips were as red as ever, but there was no sign of movement, no pulse, no breath, no beating of the heart. I bent over him and tried to find any sign of life, but in vain. He could not have lain there long, for the earthly smell would have passed away in a few hours. By the side of the box was its cover, pierced with holes here and there. I thought he might have keys on him, but when I went to search, I saw the dead eyes, and in them, dead though they were, such a look of hate, though unconscious of me or my presence, that I fled from the place, and leaving the Count's room by the window, crawled again up the castle wall. Regaining my room, I threw myself panting upon the bed and tried to think. Oh, oh, I love that scene. I love that scene so much. I remember reading that scene as a kid and just being absolutely horrified by the thought of the Count laying there in the box, open-eyed, and him thinking, well, I probably need to pat him down for a key. What a magnificent piece of very personal horror. I... This week, my husband and I have been watching our uh, scary movie list for October. We always make a big list of movies we want to watch in Halloween times. And this year is absolutely no different. And one of the things we've watched is Hatchet, the Hatchet series of movies. They are over-the-top, comedic, gory, violent slasher movies about a, you know, in many ways, a very standard story. There's a dead guy who is in the woods and his ghost kills people and there's a legend about him and some people go there on a lark and everybody gets their head chopped off basically i mean it is called hatchet you know that is literally right there in the title but the third movie in the series involves multiple teams of first responders showing up the series is very interesting each movie in the series occurs the day after the movie before it in the continuity of the story. So multiple movies filmed over the course of probably 10 years. <clears throat> and in fact, the story itself is only like four days long. You know, it's not like Friday the 13th where years later people come back to the camp and they get killed again. Everything in the series is happening immediately after the previous movie. So in the third series, like lots of people have figured out that something really horrific is happening out in the swamp. It's set in the swamps outside New Orleans. And there's a whole team. There's like a SWAT team there. And 
I said to my husband after we were done, this is such an unusual movie because horror is usually something that is depicted as occurring in isolation. And I feel like this story, this chapter of this book does such an amazing job of talking about the, the isolation that Jonathan feels and the tension of having to literally take off his shoes and barefoot scale a wall outside of a castle knowing that if he slips it's death and then climb feet first into a dark room and then go exploring because he realizes he's only got so many options for exploring and there is no other reason to be there i just i don't know i love that bit of the story that's one of my favorite parts of the novel and i'm really glad that i got to share it with you and i'll talk to you next time thanks a lot Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org.